You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. preaching last week. He did a great job stepping in for me. Uh, kids are already gone, so I don't have to <laughs> They are ready to go to their class. They have a blast up there. It was, it was so great to just hear the sermon and even talk about the promise of joy in life groups this, this week. So this morning, we're continuing our series in this book of First John, and we're going to look at another promise, another Christmas promise that is actually in this letter. And this week, it's going to be the promise of light. All right, the promise of light. And you can go ahead and take your Bible, turn, turn to First John with me. Uh, and I have to say, too, as we open up, you know, how many of you love to decorate Christmas. Let me let me Woo! see some hands. Oh yeah, more than I thought. This is great. There's a lot of ways you can decorate, right? My wife has some. She's an interior designer. For those of you who don't know, she has some strong opinions on how to decorate for Christmas. So, so I hear a lot of this. Um, but yeah, not Julie, right? Not Julie at all. No, but uh, there's there's definitely more than one way to do it. You can decorate a lot of different ways for Christmas and. And just follow me with this, because I was thinking about this a little bit this week. There's, there's the way that my, my uncle, who passed away actually last Christmas, um, would always decorate. And he would just go the route of having a thousand different things in your house, okay? You had the big, huge blow-up, Frosty the Snowman out there. You had Santa Claus on the roof. You had lights galore of every single shape and color and size. It was all there. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Just, just like, boom, Christmas in your face. You got little nutcrackers over here. You got like little knickknacks all over the place. It's really cluttery, really fast. Some people love that kind of Christmas. I'm not here to judge, okay? Julie might. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. Then you have the other style of Christmas decoration, the other extreme. All right, and there's a good happy medium, I'm sure. You know, please, please don't be offended. I hope I'm not offending anybody here <laughs> right off the bat. That would not be a good move. But you have the other style of Christmas decoration, which is just your simple, classic white Christmas lights. Right? You know what I'm saying? Just, just keep it simple and elegant and nothing but white lights. So you have all these in between. But as I was thinking about that, I got to thinking. The world's view of Christmas, when you take Jesus Christ, the promise of joy, out of Christmas, and you're just left with the commercialization of Christmas that we have in the American capitalistic way. What do we have? Well, we have Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We have all these Christmas movies. We have all these little knickknacks, all this buzz. It gets so hectic. It gets pressure. Okay, I got to go to this fourth Christmas party. This time it's with these people that I work with that I don't even want to go with. And I have to be jolly, right, um, for, the, for the fourth time in two weeks. Let me just get this Christmas season over with. That's the world's version of Christmas without Jesus Christ. And I think it's very emblematic of that house that's decorated for Christmas that just has stuff everywhere, all over the place, going every, every direction. It's just, it just makes you want to take a deep breath. 
and like pause and step back, right? So what we're going to see here this morning is when you walk with Christ this Christmas season and for your life, you're going to look a lot more like that simple, elegant house that just has bright, beaming white lights. And it's not going to be as distracting and hectic, something that you can trip over and stumble and fall down on in that other extreme of Christmas decoration. So if you're there in First John with me, the world's view of Christmas is very different than Christ's view and the church's view. Our world misses complete joy, and we talked about that last Sunday. You miss complete joy when it's not about the light. And just as joy is a promise of Christmas with the Savior of the world, the Prince of Peace, light is the, uh, is the second promise that we're going to see this morning. So, I fully realize that just saying the light is about as vaguely spiritual as you can get, right? So let me be clear. Jesus is the light. And in the scripture, the light always represents truth. So today, we are going to see what walking in the light actually looks like. There's three simple steps that are involved. And just like we sang about with this song, Oceans, it's not always easy to do this. You know, I, I know there's people in the room right now, and you're struggling to walk in the light because darkness feels so heavy upon you. And that's when you just have to clean and keep your eyes above the water. Look to Jesus. He is yours. We are going to see that promise this morning. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll go down halfway through chapter 2. We have a large text, but we are going to focus simply on this one promise of walking in the light this morning. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Anyone feel uncomfortable singing that song, uh, Oh Come You All, All You Unfaithful? It's a little offensive in and of itself, right? I, I, I'm not unfaithful. I, I'm, I'm committed and faithful to my wife. What are you talking about? Well, we are all sinners. It's very important that you understand that. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. 
but an old commandment you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. It's what Jesus told us in the Gospels. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the new commandment that he's talking about here. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I write to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know who... Him who is from the beginning, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the world. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so to walk in the light. Number one, first of all, we're going to go through this text. We're going to highlight three specific things this morning. I could probably preach five sermons from this text. We're not going to do that. First of all, walking in the light, you have to number one. What do you think it says there in verse chapter two, verse three? Keep his commandments. Thank you. It's that simple. This is the first point that John is making. You can see here back in verse 7 of chapter 1. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, keeping Jesus' commandments, Jesus actually talked about this, right? Does this ring a bell to anyone? What's the best way to keep and obey Jesus' Jesus's commands? Well, Jesus specifically told us if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So the best way to do this, to keep his commandments, is to fall in love with Jesus, get to know Jesus, love him more, and you will obey him more. And the only way that you're going to grow in your love for Jesus, if you're following the next logical progression here, how do you grow in your love for Jesus? How do you grow in your love for anyone or anything? You have to experience him, right? You have to walk with him. You have to talk with him. And this is the beautiful thing about what, Jesus, what, what John is actually going into here. He's actually going into the gospel in these preceding verses. And as you meditate on the gospel of what Jesus has done for you, as you think about that, as you talk about that with other people, as you pray through that, guess what happens? You grow in your love for him. If you're super busy just doing your own thing, and it's all about what I got to accomplish, and I got to get this done, and oh, this person over here has got some serious issues, and how dare they? I have to correct that too. If your whole world is revolving around that, and you're not integrating in the gospel of what Jesus has done for you, you will not grow in your love for Jesus. You'll actually start 
Again, I'm venturing into that hatred for other people, which we also saw. So let's go through these elements of the gospel that we see in this passage. The first big gospel word that we have here is the word advocate. An advocate. Jesus is our advocate. Okay, what does that mean? An advocate is a person who publicly supports or recommends a particular cause or a policy, right? So this isn't just a religious word, even though we kind of lost it because of dumbing down in America. Um, there you go. There's your, your school lesson for the day, the word advocate. An advocate is a person who comes to the aid of, who pleads a case to a judge. Advocate offers support, strength, counsel, and intercedes when necessary. This is really good news. This is the gospel right here. Jesus is the advocate to every single person who's confessed their sin and is walking with him. He is your advocate to God. Will you just think about that for a minute? When you blow it and you get into an argument, you raise your voice, and you're not and, and, and you're quick to judge. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? So we get a pretty good idea when you read between the lines of Scripture that Satan likes, likes to whisper those seeds of doubt into your head. He also, at times, will go before God. You know, we saw that in the book of Job. Satan will go before God. Look at what they just did. They claim to be a Christian. They have your name associated with them, and they did that. When the accuser of the brethren is there, guess who steps in as your advocate? Jesus Christ. Think about that scene at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ steps up for you and speaks for you because you were his child and he adopted you and you were accepted into the blood. It's really good news. I'm really glad Jesus Christ has my back. Next word is propitiation. This is another element of the gospel that we have to meditate on if we're going to have joy, if we're going to walk in the light. So, Propitiation is the action of propitiating or appeasing a spirit, a god, or a person. An interesting thing about this word is that this word didn't initiate or didn't like start with the New Testament. This is actually propitiation goes all the way into the pagan religions of false deities where people would have to appease the wrath of these gods. So they would have to offer something as, a, as an act of propitiation. A lot of people kind of like, even now, some Christians are a little gun-shy about this word because it has these pagan roots of propitiation, of, of appeasing a deity. Well, right here, John is just going for it. He's saying, you know what? Forget all those false gods, those idols that you, have to, that you when you were saved out of that paganism, had to propitiate to. Jesus is your propitiation to God the Father, the one true God. That's, that's, that's bold, I know, but that's what he's teaching. You think, well, wait, why does, why does Jesus have to do that? Why does he have to appease the wrath of God? Again, it goes back to the fact that we are unfaithful apart from God. We are all sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, in the Bible, propitiation is not something that we provide to God to get right with him again. No, not at all. 
It's something that God provides to us that we may be justly and mercifully forgiven and accepted. And your sin was so grave, so terrible, it broke your relationship with the perfect holy God. And the only way to restore that was for Jesus to sacrifice his life as a propitiation. Because God is holy. And God wouldn't be just if he just let sin go unchecked. That would be inconsistent with his character. God must judge sin. So Jesus stepped in and paid the price. He was the atonement. There's another gospel word that we cannot lose. For you. He paid the price of your sin on your behalf. Beautiful gospel truths here that we must meditate on. Next, you have the word perfected. Do you see that as you go down into this, uh, into, into this text? Verse 5 of chapter 2. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I know we're thinking, wait a minute, I'm not perfect. No, sir, I'm not. None of us are, right? So what is, what is he talking about here? Um, whenever I come across 1 John 1 and 1 John 2, I always think about an event that happened in my life when I was a freshman in high school. Okay, I was, I was a basketball player, I was on this team, and I wasn't getting any minutes, but I was on the bench. And it was the Sterling Christian Trojans. I had my uniform. I loved it. At least I had that, right? And we went to this tournament, and it was an overnight tournament, so we were staying at a hotel. And we had a coach, okay? This was his only year that he ever coached this team. And uh, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, um, I'll be really quick about this, okay? It's just a little color to this illustration. But this guy is the type of coach who would call a timeout, get over here on the bench, guys. He wouldn't talk to us at all. He would yell at the referee instead. Okay. And uh, he was that, that kind of guy. And I didn't really enjoy that coach. I almost quit basketball, actually, uh, that freshman year. But I stuck with it. Anyway, he had us all over to his room. It's like a Friday night. We got a game in the morning, right? We were a high school basketball team. He, he invited us all into his room to have a Bible study. And he goes into this Bible study about how you can be come sinlessly perfect. You can mature in your life to the point where you will never sin. And this guy had the audacity to say, that's me. I don't sin. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure you just sinned two hours ago in that basketball game. Where you lost your cool and we're not acting like Christ. Um, so that happens and there was, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm a young kid. I'm like, this is not right. This guy's office rocker. Somebody, there was like a senior on the team, they, he stepped in and he said, hey, well, what, what do you think about this verse? 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. <laughs> it was like, oh, right, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. But um, I don't remember what happened after that. That's all. I, I, the story really ends there. I don't really know what happened. <laughs> I'm sure he excused me to win somewhere. But, uh, no, we, we are all sinners, okay? Even after you're saved, you're not perfect. You're going to mess up. And this is such good news here. He will forgive. And this is, this is written, okay, another key, key point. Book of 1 John, 
Who's it written to? It's written to the church. It's written to Christians, okay? So for sure, we're talking to people like you and me who love Jesus, we worship Jesus, we still screw up and mess things all, all up. When we do that, if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, make it a liar and his word is not in us. So we can confess that sin as a believer in Jesus Christ. We remove that out of the way, and we, and we restore our right view with Jesus, and it's under the blood. It's already forgiven anyway, right? This is where sometimes people get confused with this. Well, you don't, have to, you don't have to say you're sorry for something that's already under the blood. Well, 1 John 1, 9 says, hey, just confess it. Tell Jesus, I'm sorry. Help me do better. That is still biblical, and that keeps a short sin account between you and God. It's a great thing. Now, the word perfected simply means in this passage not that you're never going to sin again. It means that you come into a place of maturity. The love of God is matured in you. You grow up from being a child into someone who has a fully developed body. I was thinking about my boys, right? Like you guys, most of you know my boys. They, they are not fully mature, even though Beckham punches as hard as a full-grown man sometimes. Um, you know, when I'm boxing around with him, I, I mean, it's come, the day is coming soon. That kid's going to just take me out. <laughs> but thankfully, he hasn't fully matured yet. All of my kids have some room to grow. We have some time as parents to continue to teach them, right? But they are maturing, and one day they will have a mature body that is fully formed and developed. That's what we're talking about here, spiritually. As a Christian, you can mature in your love for God to the point where you start obeying God and you look more like Jesus Christ. So, all of this means we must keep His commandments. We obey. And obedience is not usually something good, that, something that we're good at, right? I mean... I'm not a rule follower at all. Rules that don't make sense to me, I really have a hard time with. Amen. So my authority, <laughs> I, need to I have authority too. But God's rules, if you stop and think about them, they make sense, okay? And even if they don't make sense to you, it's just because you're not seeing it correctly, all right? Because he knows way more than you. He's way beyond you. So following God's rules, obeying him, is always, always the way to go. You've heard me say this before. Like, if, if God says don't, if he says don't do something, what he's saying is don't hurt yourself. Look it up every single time. Every one of God's thou shalt nots, don't have sex before marriage. Don't do this. Don't, like, the, the ones that people really have problems with, they are there to protect you. When he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. His rules make sense, and it's destructive to disobey. Now, verse 6 gives us another element of walking in the light. It's very close, but there's a nuanced difference. So take a look. Number 2, this is in chapter 2, verse 6. Walk the same way Jesus walked. That's number 2. Walk the same way Jesus walked. You can even say, walk the Jesus walk, number 2. All right? And... We do live in a society of copycats. 
I don't know if you've noticed this or not. NFL coaches do it. You know, one one coach has some awesome successful scheme, and and you know what? Next week another coach does it, and before you know it, three weeks later, like half the NFL has copied his his defensive tactic, and they're and they're doing that. That's why it's always evolving. Um, even teenagers who try to look different than the generation older than them, they all kind of end up dressing the same way that their friends dress, right? Like. At least most of them do. I, I'm not really on that scene anymore, but most of the time, they dress the same. We are really great at copying what feels good and what sounds good to us, so we get that concept. We're good at that. But there's really only one person we must copy. It's Jesus Christ, our Savior. Walk the same way Jesus walked. So I want you to think about it this way. What did Jesus do in his life that you really struggle with? Maybe, maybe there's more than one, probably. There's more than one for me. So, uh, but think of one specific way. I think uh, a lot of times people love, and I, 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 I enjoy it too, the old personality tests, right? Like maybe you know your Enneagram number, maybe you know your Myers-Briggs. Like I, you know, there's a thousand different things. There's strength finders, there's all kinds of really good tools. I enjoy them, I'm not criticizing them. Um, but there's a tendency that people have of like, oh, well this is who I am. I figured myself out on a deeper level. And that's, that's helpful in a lot of ways, right? But they're like, okay, this is who I am. So now I use that as a way to, um, Make an excuse to not do what I don't want to do. I can't. I can't talk to that person. I'm just not that social kind of guy. Um, no, I, I could never. I could never witness. Or I, I mean, that's that's for somebody else who's gifted in a better way. Well, here's a question for you: What was Jesus' personality? Because we should probably all do that, right? Well, the answer that I would—I mean, I don't have a verse for this—but I would go out on a limb and say, guess what? Jesus was perfectly mature and complete in every single facet, right? So you would have never known what any of your number Jesus Christ was because he was perfectly balanced in every single way. He had it all. He was the full package. And here's what I'm getting at. As you mature in your love for Christ, as you walk the way he walked, as you become more like your Savior, People should have a harder and harder time figuring out your strengths and weaknesses and like where you fit on that chart, that Myers-Briggs chart. You know, what's your disc, disc rating? I don't know and I don't care because you're trying to do what you can do in this world for Jesus Christ. Does this make sense? Are you with me on this? And it's almost a compliment if people don't know what you are and they have a hard time figuring it out. I tell you what, that actually shows a little sign of maturity. To be like Christ. Jesus didn't hold grudges, right? That's probably our, if we're talking about walking the way Jesus walked, I mean, this is probably going to hit a lot of us. This person offended me. This person did wrong. We're not minimizing the wrong that they did. They did. It's happened to all of us. And it's easy to let that set and to get upset about that, to get a little bitterness in there. Guess what? That's not the way Jesus walked. So we can't do that either. Remember, um, remember Malchus, the guy who uh, Peter took the sword and cut off his ear? 
You know, we're really good at turning people into the villain. Something wrong happened and we can actually say, that's the bad guy right there. Jesus never did that. He picked up the ear. He healed that man on the spot and said, Peter, that's not how this is going to go down. We're going to be peaceful about this. He looked at people and he, and he made an effort every single time. Not made an effort. I mean, he, he did. We have to, we're the ones who have to make the effort. But he always realized where they were coming from. It wasn't just about his perspective. When he was interacting with people, when he had conflicts with people, just look at the story of the woman at the well. You know, this lady's mouthing off to Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't getting reactive and defensive, right? He's thinking about where she's coming from. And I'm going to help steer this conversation to where she needs to go because I actually know exactly why she's saying what she's saying. That's, that's called walking the way Jesus walked. You're actually thinking through, well, well why did that person say this? And, and why do they feel that way? Okay, well, this happened in their background, and this is going on in their life right now. Get some sympathy, and you can actually help that person instead of just getting mad at that person, right? We can go on all day with a thousand other applications on walking the way Jesus walked. Um, I just think of that that good old bracelet from the 90s, right? WWJD. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Still is a good application. Um, if you are in doubt, just think through that. There's a lot more in this passage, but there's only one more step about walking in the light, and that's what we're going to focus on. So number three today, love not the world. Chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world. Okay, question. You may have this. I thought we are supposed to love the world... That sounds like a good thing. Loving the world, right? Right? Okay. Well, let's define our terms here. What is the world? Well, as we read this, I don't know if you caught it, John actually really broke down a great biblical definition for the world. We're not talking about the cosmos, the creation of God, and all these beautiful things, the, the trees and the flowers and the sunrise and the, and the smiling faces. That's not what we're talking about, okay? You can love that. Please do. God created it. It's good. It's for us to enjoy. When he says the world here, he's talking about the world system that is anti-Christ, that is opposed to Jesus Christ. The prince of the power of this air in this world is Satan himself. The world's system that is in opposition to God is what we cannot love. You say, well, why would I love that? Okay, let's look at the text. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the desires of the flesh, these are sinful, lustful desires where we have an overpowering desire for that which God has forbidden. The lust of the flesh is a sexual, fleshly desire that is, that is breaking God's rules. We can't love that. We have to battle that through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that lives inside it. We know it. The desires of the eyes... This is when we see something visually that incites covetousness or jealousy. That person has a great car. I want one of those. Classic keeping up with the Joneses, all right? 
Pride of life is the desire in every human being to put him or herself on the throne as their own God of their life. When you have the pride of life, you're not looking out for other people. You're looking out for numero uno. Arrogance, self-promotion, greed, that's the world, everywhere in the world. And that is the pride of life. I was listening to um, a message, message recently, and somebody had talked about how they heard the only time Jesus said to remember a woman in the, in the scripture. Do you guys know what it is? The only woman that Jesus said to remember? And I was like, immediately, like, wait, what? I, I, I don't know what this is. I don't know this answer. Um, and honestly, before I even tell you, I think that's kind of clickbaity. Okay, I, I don't really like that idea because Jesus wants us to remember every single woman in Scripture throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you have oodles of evidence throughout throughout all of Scripture that women are very important. So it's a little misleading to say this is the only person that Jesus, only woman that Jesus said to remember. A little misleading. So forget I said that. But do I have your attention? I guess it worked. Okay. Um, but but don't ever repeat this, all right? So, um, but the only woman in the New Testament that Jesus specifically says, sure, okay, technically, remember this woman. You know who it is? Does anybody know who it is? Lot's wife. Yeah, that was a curveball, right? We weren't expecting that one. Remember Lot's wife. What was going on in that situation? Oh, here, I'll give you the verse. Luke 17, 32 through 33. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And I have to be honest, I kind of want to forget that story a little bit sometimes. It's because one of those stories in the Old Testament, you're like, oh, really? Wow. Okay, we are, it's true, though. I believe the Bible. This, I believe a lot of things that are, that are really hard to believe. Miracles in the Bible. I believe that a virgin conceived of a baby. Who, who, Jesus Christ who was born, okay? I believe that Jesus is coming back one day riding a white horse, all right? So I believe some, some stuff that people who only believe in science would have a hard time with, right? But even though we kind of want to just forget this weird story, Lot's wife grew up in Sodom. God is judging that city, that wicked city, because there were not even 10 righteous people in that city. It was, it was a terrible place. Lot had to get out of there with his family. And God specifically said, don't turn back. Y'all remember this from, from, from Sunday school class? Well, Lot's wife did. She turned back. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. Seems like that seems really extreme and harsh. Maybe. To 21st century years. Here's the truth. If she was rejecting God and didn't know God, she was lost. She was unfaithful. She was rebelling against her true authority. And God had every right to do what he did. Just like he had every right to turn any of us into a pillar of salt. But by God's grace, he saved us by his mercy. So loving the world, when we remember, oh, that was, you know, we can romanticize things. You know, think about, well, I mean, most of the time, people who, like, were saved later on in their life, they don't really have as much problem with this. 
Okay? I've talked to a lot of people like this. They're saved when they were 30. They're saved when they were 40. They're saved when they were 50. And they just look back at those old days of like, wow, that was horrific. I'm so glad I am past that. I can't believe I'm past that. I can't believe the new person I am. Like, it's so great to hear those testimonies. A lot of times it's the people who were saved at a really young age that they see the glitz and the glamour and all the shiny promises of the world. They see the people having fun. There's, there's pleasure in sin for a season, right? That person's making all kinds of money. They're going on all these vacations. Like, wow, this guy has it all. You see that, and you miss what's all the stuff that's going on behind it. And you only see that little snapshot, right? You don't see where that's leading. Okay? They always put the really attractive person on beer commercials or whatever, right? They never show you what addiction can actually lead to, right? Love not the world. It's the third step of walking in the light. The promise of light is so much better than the darkness of this world. It's just so much better. And once you experience it, you just want more and more of it. Amen. So will you accept Jesus Christ? Will you obey him? Worship him. That's, uh, and, and a lot of you guys may not know this, but we have like three things that we try to accomplish and we try to teach all of our people the Doxa Church. Worship Christ. Walk with Christ and work through Christ. That's like the DNA of, of a church member, right? Worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work through Christ. It actually pretty much lines up with what we just see here in 1 John. Accept Jesus Christ, obey him, walk as Jesus walked, walk with Christ. You're abiding in the pasture, right? From last series. And then work through Christ. You don't love the world, you turn your back on that, and you look ahead, and you move forward. Keep your eyes above the water. The promise of light is for every single person. I just want you to think this morning. Again, I'm going to ask that question one more time. What in your life does not look like Jesus' life? There's probably a few areas, right? I mentioned bitterness. I, I, I talked about a couple of things, forgiving people, right? There's a lot of different things that you can plug in there and fill in the blank right there. And what I just want you to focus on today is to walk in the light is, is one of the promises that you need. You're going to be empty and Christmas is going to be flat at the end of the day. December 26th is going to roll around and it's going to feel terrible if you don't embody and, and put in the promises of Jesus Christ into your Christmas. And it's not just the Christmas season either. This is, this is for your life. Walking in the light. It's a promise. It is the fulfillment of who you're, who you're called to be. That is your full potential. Is to have a relationship with God. We must focus on the gospel. And that's what we're going to sing about right now. We're going to sing about the good news of what Jesus has done for and when we sing and we talk and we, and we share the truth of the gospel in our lives, we grow in our love and our appreciation for Jesus. And when we grow in our love and appreciation for Jesus, we grow in our obedience. Everything starts to flow.
So, Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And my love.